The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association of Anatomists. Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious and for medical students. Today's episode, Can You Take Me Higher? I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, an associate professor in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional, nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode on altitude sickness. We often hear about brave climbers risking their lives to climb the world's highest summits. But in order for such a feat to occur, the human body has to make incredible adaptations. These adaptations are to the changing atmosphere as they continue to climb. Climbers ignoring these changes do so at their own peril and put themselves at risk for developing altitude sickness, the topic of today's podcast. We have an excellent interdisciplinary team to discuss this topic. Would you like to take a moment to introduce yourselves? I'm Farshad Mansouri from Physiology Department. I'm a neuroscientist, but I'm also interested in respiratory physiology. My name's Dr. Georgina Stevens. I'm a medical practitioner who works primarily in education. G'day there, my name is Chris and I am an interested community member. First of all, we need to find out what exactly is altitude sickness? Altitude sickness refers to a group of symptoms that can occur when a person goes to a higher altitude than their body is accustomed to, most commonly when climbing a mountain, hence it's sometimes being called mountain sickness. It relates to the body not having enough time to adapt to changes brought about by lower amounts of oxygen being breathed in. Could we have some more examples of when this might occur? The whole story is related to the reaction of brain to hypoxic condition. By hypoxic condition, we mean we are in a situation that we have less oxygen molecules available to the body. We can realize the importance of this brain need for oxygen through several examples. Imagine we clamp your carotid arteries. These arteries supply blood and actually oxygen to brain. And if we clamp them, after about 35 seconds, you would lose consciousness. And in five minutes, irreversible damage to brain cells would start. It shows how sensitive our brain cells are to oxygen supply. We can also realize the importance of this if we imagine that now a helicopter comes here and we board this helicopter, they close the door and they take us to the top of Mount Everest. As soon as they open the door and ask us to go and enjoy the nature there, we might be excited to go there and see what's happening, but we wouldn't have much time to enjoy the experience. We would have only 50 seconds because one by one, we would fall down. Those who are running around to try their new mobile phone and take pictures, they would fall down earlier because they are consuming oxygen and they are more vulnerable to the hypoxic condition at the top of Mount Everest. 
Those who sit silently, they would be more resistant. They might be awake and conscious for about 70 to 80 seconds. Those who were born in Melbourne, they were born at sea level. Their body is not adjusted to hypoxic condition. They would be more vulnerable. Those who were born in New Mexico or Colorado, they would be more resistant because they were living at higher altitude. Their body has slightly adjusted to the hypoxic condition, so they have more time. They can run back to the helicopter, close the door, and increase the pressure of oxygen, and they survive. So it shows how sensitive our brain is to a hypoxic condition. But we also experience this in other occasions. Imagine you are flying from Melbourne to London, and now you are at the height of, say, around 10,000 meters. If there is a hole in the cabin on the window for any reason or the door opens, we would have a drop in the cabin pressure. They usually keep it in a pressurized condition. But now there will be a pressure drop. Hypoxic condition would come and in around 30 to 40 seconds, people would lose consciousness. You might have heard that cabin crew suggest that if there is a drop in cabin pressure, put on your mask first, then take care of the others. For example, those children that are sitting next to you. The reason is that if you spend time to put on their mask, you would lose consciousness and you wouldn't have time to put your own mask. This shows how sensitive we are to the hypoxic condition. And the whole story of mountain sickness or altitude sickness is related to this vulnerability of our brain cells to the hypoxic condition. You talk about changes in pressure. Now, how does this actually alter the oxygen content of the environment that you're in? Imagine you are at sea level. The total barometric pressure is something like 760 millimeter mercury. So you can imagine we have different gas molecules that exert this pressure. We have nitrogen molecules, we have oxygen molecules. Overall, 21% of these molecules that are exerting this pressure are oxygen molecules. Mm. This fractional concentration remains the same regardless of the altitude that you achieve. For example, if you go to Mexico City, somewhere that the height is around 3,000 meters, the total barometric pressure would drop to 526, something like that. The fractional concentration of oxygen would remain around 21%. And in this condition, the total pressure that oxygen molecules are exerting, or in other words, contributing to the total pressure, would be something like 110 millimeter mercury. If we go to the top of Mount Everest, imagine around 9,000 meters. Now the total barometric pressure is 230 millimeter mercury, and the pressure that oxygen molecules are exerting is only 48 millimeter mercury. Mm. And that is the reason now we are exposed to a hypoxic condition. Most of us know that the lungs are used for breathing and to bring oxygen in, but how does the pressure of our environment affect the physiology of the lungs? As we discussed, the fractional concentration of oxygen is 21%. The contribution of oxygen molecules to this total pressure would be something like 160 millimeter mercury. Now I'm going to call it partial pressure of oxygen. It would help us to describe this contribution of oxygen molecules to the total pressure that we have in the environment. If the partial pressure of oxygen in the environment is 160 at sea level, the partial pressure of oxygen in our alveoli would be 100 millimeter mercury. It means that in the course of ventilatory activity, the partial pressure of 
that we have within alveoli is less than the outside environment. And the reason is that within our alveoli, we have CO2 molecules, carbon dioxide molecules that are continuously entering to the alveoli because we are producing carbon dioxide in the process of using oxygen for producing energy. Therefore, part of those molecules that exert pressure within our alveoli are carbon dioxide molecules, water molecules that we have there, and now the partial pressure of oxygen would decrease to 100. Many anatomical textbooks actually propose that what are called intercostal muscles, so the muscles between the ribs, another word for ribs is costal, that these muscles are important for breathing mechanism for helping accommodate this pressure. But more recent evidence actually suggests that the intercostal muscles are helping prevent these external pressures within the environment, pushing in on the space needed to allow the lungs to expand. They're preventing the collapse of the thoracic cage. They're essentially bracing it. You mentioned the alveoli. For those listeners who haven't listened to other podcasts around the lungs, can you please briefly explain what these are? We have something like 8 million airways that conduct airs into the lung. And these airways are generated because we have something like 23 times of branching in the airway. And when we go toward the more smaller airways, at the end, when we get to the distal part of the lung, we will have something like 500 million small units. They are like small balloons and they are filled with air. And during our inspiration and expiration, air enters to these alveoli, to these small units, and then we exhale those air. And these small alveoli are covered by small capillaries. Something around 280 billion capillaries are surrounding our alveoli. And gas exchange between blood and air occurs in these alveoli. And interestingly, we refer to this system as the bronchial tree, because if you picture a tree when you're looking outside, at the trunk would be the trachea, and then it continues to divide until you get to the leaves. And in fact, in this analogy, it's completely appropriate, because the leaves are actually the site of gas exchange for the tree as well. How exactly does our brain control the respiratory activity? We have some neural networks in the medulla and some in the pond, there are some parts of brain above the spinal cord. And these neural networks have some important jobs to do. First, they offer the automatic breathing rhythm, and they also need to adjust our respiration depending on our body demand. Our brain depends on some receptors that are distributed in different parts of body. Some of them are in the brain itself, it's called central chemosensitive area, and some of them are in other parts of the body, such as carotid arteries and also aortic arch. The common carotid artery begins to divide as it moves into the head and neck area. Right at this fork in the road of the common carotid artery is the location of what's called the carotid body. This carotid body is one of those structures that senses gas levels within the blood either through the pH or through the change in pressure, based on the type of gases that are flowing through. When the carotid body does receive a signal that needs to get to the brain to update the central nervous system about its gas status, it uses cranial nerve number 9, otherwise known as the glossopharyngeal nerve. This nerve becomes the highway between the gaseous composition within the bloodstream and the central nervous system or the brain. This nerve also senses pain from the back of the throat 
and taste from the posterior one-third of the tongue. So this nerve is actually pretty busy. Interestingly, those that live in chronically hypoxic locations can sometimes overburden their carotid bodies, and this can lead to hypertrophy or overgrowth, which occurs because the carotid body is trying to accommodate this hypoxic situation. Now that the body has a gauge or a reading of the oxygen level, how does the body react to that? Our brain is monitoring three important parameters as described before. One of them is the partial pressure of oxygen. The other one is partial pressure of carbon dioxide, CO2. And the other one is the hydrogen ion concentration that we would call it pH. For controlling of our body demand, our brain is mainly monitoring CO2 level to control our minute-by-minute ventilation. It might appear counterintuitive because we think that our body needs oxygen and our brain should monitor oxygen mainly to control our minute-by-minute ventilation. But our brain knows that our hemoglobin is very efficient and would do very well in transporting oxygen even if oxygen level drops in the environment. Therefore, particularly for those who are born at sea level, our brain is used to monitor CO2 to adjust our minute-by-minute ventilation. And this is very important because when we ascend to higher altitude, this would be the main cause of problem that our brain would face in adjusting our minute-by-minute ventilation, depending our body demand. At what altitude do we start to see symptoms and begin to feel unwell? This is a very important point. The factors that contribute to the appearance of these problems that are mainly related to the reaction of brain to hypoxia depends on the altitude that you achieve, how rapidly you ascend to that altitude, how fit is your body, where you were born, and your activity level. So all of these parameters would contribute to the development of these symptoms If we don't think about the consequence of this, it might gradually develop to the full picture of mountain sickness, acute, mild level, or severe level. We can simulate it, and actually we climb to different mountains to see what would happen at those altitudes. Which would be the first mountain we would go to to start seeing some of those more acute levels? For example, I can tell you people climb to the top of Mount Fuji. They actually board a bus at Shinjuku Station in Tokyo and then go to Station 5. And from there, they climb to the top of Mount Fuji. If we consider Mount Fuji, it's around 3,500 meters. Many people go there and come back without developing mountain sickness. But there are people who go there and they develop acute mountain sickness. So as I mentioned before, there are several factors that contribute to this story. Those who climb rapidly to the top, they are excited, they are motivated, and they want to go and take picture and stay there overnight. They are taking this risk because they don't let their body acclimatize to these higher altitudes. Those who are running around taking picture, they are too much active, they are consuming lots of oxygen, then they are exposing themselves to the problem. If you're one of these active people who starts getting some symptoms of acute mountain sickness, these might include things like fatigue, dizziness or lightheadedness, if you happen to stay overnight, some sleep disturbances, headache, gastrointestinal symptoms such as a decreased appetite, nausea or even vomiting, 
and you might even start experiencing shortness of breath and an increased heart rate. Those are all symptoms that we would consider part of mild acute mountain sickness. A handy way of remembering these symptoms is that they're all quite similar to having a hangover. Going beyond Mount Fuji, what would be the next level where we start seeing some of the more moderate to severe signs or symptoms? Let's assume we climb to the top of Mount Damavand. It's a mountain near Tehran. And the altitude is around 5,670 meters. Let's assume it is about 6,000 meters. At that altitude, the total barometric pressure is around 350 millimeter mercury. Please remember that at sea level, it was 760 millimeter mercury, but the fractional concentration of oxygen is still 21%. It means that the partial pressure of oxygen in the environment is 73 millimeter mercury. And if we consider the partial pressure of oxygen in our alveoli, now it is only 40 millimeter mercury. And at this partial pressure of oxygen, hemoglobin saturation would be adversely affected. Now the hemoglobin saturation that should be around 98%, 99% in normal people at sea level, it would drop to 70 or even less than 70%. And now the signs of hypoxic condition might appear. So essentially what we're hearing is that the hemoglobin within a red blood cell is a raft And what it's doing is taking on people or amounts of oxygen onto that raft, ferrying them through the bloodstream and the vessels, and dropping it off in the organs. But what we're now seeing at this level is essentially the raft is only partially full, and this leads to a variety of clinical symptoms. When somebody begins to start experiencing the more severe effects of acute mountain sickness, we might begin to see things like impaired coordination. So they might have difficulty walking, which is known as ataxia. A person's ability to think clearly will also slow down, and this will get progressively worse. This is all related to a lack of oxygen getting to the brain carried by those rafts of hemoglobin. So the symptoms that we're seeing are all related to the brain being so sensitive to a lack of oxygen. I'm going to be really adventurous, and I want to go to the highest mountain possible. What's going to happen to me if my brain and body hasn't acclimated to that situation? So we will continue the story. Let's assume that we went to the top of Mount Everest. A helicopter took us or we just had a escalator that moved us to the top of Mount Everest. And now we are at altitude of around 9,000 meters. At this altitude, the total barometric pressure is now around 230 millimeter mercury. The fractional concentration of oxygen is still 21%, but in the outside environment, the partial pressure of oxygen has dropped to 47. Please remember that at sea level, the partial pressure of oxygen within our alveoli was around 100. Now it is only 47 millimeter mercury. And at this partial pressure of oxygen, only around 20% of hemoglobin molecules are saturated. And I can tell you, at this level, brain cells cannot extract the amount of oxygen that they need, and the person is not conscious. And if the person remains there, then those signs and symptoms that were mentioned might develop. Going back to our analogy of the raft, it's not as if the raft or the hemoglobin is completely without oxygen. It's just that the concentration, the amount of people in that raft or the amount of 
oxygen molecules in that raft are too low to supply the high demand of the brain, which results in a variety of severe symptoms. So whilst acute mountain sickness in itself is quite a benign condition without any lasting impacts, now that we've gone higher up in altitude, that can progress along a spectrum through severe acute mountain sickness up to include life-threatening conditions such as high-altitude cerebral edema, that means swelling of the brain, and high-altitude pulmonary edema, or swelling of the lungs. So it's these two conditions, high-altitude cerebral edema and high-altitude pulmonary edema, that are life-threatening and can cause coma and potentially even death. If we think about stories of hearing mountain climbers die on mountains, that can happen because these people need someone to help them down the mountain to reduce the altitude, get more oxygen, and get the appropriate treatment. So if you don't have anyone to help you in this situation, that's when mountain climbers can die. I've seen photos of these tragedies on Mount Everest where these people have passed away, but they had oxygen tanks and it wasn't that they actually ran out of oxygen. What's going on there? If they take oxygen tank and breathe through oxygen, in other words, if they take us by helicopter to the top of Mount Everest and we have access to 100% oxygen, it means that all the molecules in the air that we are breathing are oxygen molecules, then we can keep hemoglobin saturation at higher level and we can avoid those symptoms. But it depends how long we would stay there and for how long we would have access to oxygen supply. Because if we fall asleep, and we don't breathe through that oxygen tank, that's enough to push us toward acute mountain sickness. So then how is it that in the past there were so many mountaineers that were able to climb to the top of Mount Everest without suffering the effects of hypoxia and, in fact, without even oxygen tanks? This is very interesting to see how our brain, usually we say our body, but in reality it's our brain that adapts to this condition. The sensitivity to CO2 that we discussed at sea level, if we keep CO2 level at higher level or lower level, gradually our brain adapts to this change and it increases its sensitivity to oxygen. Of course, some scientists believe that these are happening in parallel. If we go to, say, the height of 6,000 meters, at the beginning, our ventilation wouldn't match the body needs. But gradually, our brain would lose its sensitivity to CO2 and become more sensitive to oxygen level. So gradually, our ventilation would increase. Imagine we are two people who are sitting at the height of 6,000 meters. I arrived now by a helicopter and my friend arrived three days ago and he has been sitting there for three days. You would see that we are breathing in a different way. He's hyperventilating, but I'm not. I'm looking at him. I'm surprised that he's doing this, but his body has acclimatized to this environment. You might say that, okay, I can repeat that. I can just look at him and say that he's hyperventilating. I would do the same. I would start to do hyperventilation. I can prevent mountain sickness for a while, but as soon as I fall asleep, my brain would go back to a lower level of ventilation and I would develop mountain sickness. So part of the story of acclimatization is related to the change in the sensitivity of our brain to CO2 level and oxygen level. When they have recorded from nerves that are going from chemosensitive areas to brain, these chemoreceptors, 
they have noticed that the firing rate of the nerve is sensitive to the changes in oxygen level, CO2 level, and hydrogen ion concentration. Therefore, even at sea level, our brain is aware of the partial pressure of oxygen, partial pressure of CO2, and hydrogen ion concentration. This is our brain network in medulla that is more sensitive to CO2 level. I see. So the information coming into the brain has all of the information. Exactly. It's just the brain is only paying attention to one or the other, carbon dioxide or oxygen. So essentially, a warning signal is coming up to the brain, but the brain's ignoring the warning signal. Because it is used to monitor CO2. It is more sensitive to CO2. But fortunately, gradually, it would disappear. Our brain would regain its sensitivity to oxygen. What I'm hearing is that the brain's response to low oxygen levels adapts more quickly than necessarily we could build the rafts physiologically. Exactly. So when we stay at higher altitude, within days and weeks, there will be some physiological changes that are happening. In addition to change in the sensitivity of our respiratory control centers, we will have more production of red blood cells. The blood volume would increase. The cardiac output would increase. And some capillaries at the top of the lung that are normally not involved in gas exchange, they will be recruited. The area for gas exchange will be increased. There are some other changes that happens within months and years. We will have more capillaries developing in tissues within the heart itself, within our muscles. There will be some changes in our enzymatic activities, even within our mitochondria. The enzymes would change, the expression of enzymes, the production of enzymes. So therefore, our body would gradually adapt to this chronic hypoxic condition. So the body adaptations are slower and they take more time. But really, what we're talking about with altitude sickness, that's really your brain ignoring some critical signals. Yes, it's making a big mistake. Having experienced altitude sickness or hypoxia, what are the treatment options available to us? apart from obviously escaping the environment that's causing this. So you're right. One of the first things to do is either not continue climbing the mountain, or if the symptoms are getting more towards the severe end, decrease your altitude, and maybe you need some help to do that. We've discussed a little bit about oxygen and how mountain climbers might take oxygen with them to order to reach higher altitudes. So taking supplemental oxygen can really help the symptoms that you get with acute mountain sickness. There are some medications that can help with acute mountain sickness. For mild acute mountain sickness, like having a hangover, where you might take some paracetamol or even some anti-nausea tablets, these can be taken to help alleviate the symptoms. One medication that you might have heard of in relation to acute mountain sickness is acetazolamide also known as Diamox. This is sometimes prescribed to people before they go on a hiking holiday, for example. This, however, is more commonly used in the prevention of acute mountain sickness rather than the treatment. So you might be told to start it a day before starting your hike and then to continue it for a few days afterwards. But it's usually only prescribed if you're thought to be at moderate or high risk of developing acute mountain sickness. In basic terms, it works on the kidneys to increase the excretion of bicarbonate into the urine. We discussed a little bit about the pH balance in the blood. So if we get rid of bicarbonate, which is a more basic compound, 
we increase the level of acid essentially in the blood. This then tells the brain, who wants to always get the body back in balance, that we need to increase the rate of breathing, which gets rid of carbon dioxide, to help try and bring the blood back into balance. So the acetazolamide is really working to help kind of speed up the acclimatization that the brain was a little bit bad at by getting us to increase our ventilatory rate. We mentioned that in the first 30 minutes of being exposed to hypoxia, our brain tries to increase the ventilation. This is the hypoxic stimulation of the respiratory centers, but this hyperventilation would lead to a decline in the partial pressure of CO2 and a decrease in the hydrogen ion concentration. And these two would inhibit the respiratory control centers and therefore the ventilation wouldn't match the body needs. It's assumed that if we treat people with some drugs that can keep the blood at lower pH level, in other words, at higher hydrogen ion concentration, then we might overcome this inhibitory effect of hydrogen ion concentration on respiratory centers and keep the brain cope with the hypoxic condition. So whilst acetazolamide can help with this acclimatization, it doesn't negate everything else we've discussed about climbing a mountain at an appropriate rate and taking care to be aware of any symptoms you develop and planning your rate of ascent and rest and activity in relation to that. You've mentioned people living in New Mexico, but there are places higher where people live, such as in Peru. How do these people actually survive in those regions without developing hypoxia? This is what is called adaptation. It's different from acclimatization. Adaptation refers to those physiological and genetic changes that occur over a period of years, and it occurs in generations in children who are born at higher altitude. And this occurs in permanent residents of those who are living at altitudes like 4,000 meters, 4,500 meters. And these physiological changes include several changes in their brain response to these gases. In their lung itself, they have more alveoli compared to to normal people, their body size is different, their chest size is big, they have a high cardiac output, they have a larger gas exchange surface, and also they have some changes even at the level of their enzymatic capacity. There are changes in their mitochondria. They can achieve a workload that a lowlander can never achieve, even if a lowlander goes and stays at higher altitude for 10 years. The work capacity between a lowlander and a permanent resident of higher altitude who was born there are not compatible. Is there any detrimental effect for these highlanders to spend time in the lowlanding areas? Not necessarily, because experience has shown that when they come to lower altitude, they can keep the same workload and they don't have any problem. The problem actually happens to those people who think that if they go to higher altitude, they would increase their capacity for exercise or other things. We know that some elite athletes go to higher altitudes, assuming that they would increase their red blood cells, they would increase their hemoglobin concentration, they would increase their blood volume, and when they come back, they might perform better. And it's a kind of physiological doping that nobody would care about it. It's different from pharmacological doping. But it has been shown that it might have adverse effects for these people because now their heart, which is not used to this level of blood volume, needs to deal with the blood with higher viscosity. And this higher viscosity is coming from the higher number of red blood cells. 
And when they come back to the lower altitude and now they want to bring their performance to the extreme level and compete, then they might face the cardiovascular problems. So it's clear that there's a lot of signals and the pathway for the connection between the brain, breathing, and oxygen levels is pretty complex. I think that's all we have time for today, though. I want to thank my interdisciplinary team for discussing the concept of altitude sickness today. As always, remember, relationships matter, at least the anatomical ones. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter, so if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomists and use the hashtag AnatQ.